Hello and welcome to the Collapsed Podcast. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we are doing Polaroid Part 4, the final episode. So in the last episode, to briefly recap, we saw Polaroid go through their lawsuit with Kodak that ended ultimately well, but didn't really help their situation. Polaroid had some new products and they tried to expand their product line not very successfully and they started to see their film sales decline which kind of brings us through to the early 90s they had a new ceo at the time that was internal again still not really turning around the company and so when he steps down they start to look at an external candidate the year is 1995 and they bring on gary de camillo pronunciation is not one of my strong suits when it comes to names. <laughs> so hopefully I didn't butcher that. Gary comes from Black & Decker. I can only imagine how this interview went. I'm guessing he's the typical hardware person from a hardware store, Home Depot or Lowe's, where as you're shopping for something, he's just telling you how to do everything better, whatever your project is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that he spun it as transferable skills, which is what I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> yes he could he's from marketing he can solve all their problems he turned around a company that sold drills film is i mean how much different is it i mean once you get to the top level like you said it's all transferable skills right that's right it's not about the the product it's about the skills absolutely and i i mean in all fairness i actually am a pretty true believer in that but let us see how well those skills transfer to polaroid in the year 1995, Polaroid had a loss of $140 million. And at this time, they have a market cap of probably about $1.8 billion. He had a reputation for cost-cutting. That's pretty self-explanatory. Improving productivity, which we know just means working longer and harder hours for their employees for no extra pay. And quickly developing new projects. Now, that sounds exciting. And I think you might be a little disappointed at what they define as new product project or product so he had a plan when he came in right so what does polaroid have to offer they have some failed products but they are still making money on film so to determine what is going to make money he decides to create and sell 20 to 40 new products a year which just translates into we're just going to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And whatever sticks, we cancel everything else and start making those things that stick. Now, if you're thinking new products, I would not get too excited. Uh, we're talking the difference between uh, you know, a one-step camera, a regular one, and then a one-step camera that has the, Dis or, uh, the, the Looney Tunes Tasmanian Devil or a Barbie version. Uh, don't think new product. Just think, you know, a stretching of a product line. Mm -hmm. Kind of the difference between a Snickers bar and a mini Snickers or king size Snickers, you know, whatever they can do to, to, to get you to buy it. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's, it's maybe one camera with 20 different versions uh, of a skin for it. Exactly. Now, to be fair, as you'll see as we go on here, there are some genuinely different takes on it. But we're more in that ballpark rather than trying to completely redesign the camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so 
not only did he come in, he brought in some of his staff members that he felt would help the company. He cut the workforce by 15%, which comes out to about 1,500 jobs at Polaroid. You know, got to increase productivity, so you got to cut, cut all that extra weight, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I said, he overhauled that management team, and he brought in marketing and product development firms, consulting companies like Kraft Foods. Hey, why not? If you're already doing hardware, why not bring in a food company to to help out with the marketing? So I'm sure you're thinking, Matt, what's the Polaroid staff feel about this whole new management team? I mean, they've had essentially one corporate culture from land and then his successors pretty much kept with that. And now this is entirely new management. So I have a quote from one of the engineers at that time. Mm hmm that I think little did he know, or maybe he did know based on the quote, uh, that it's going to pretty much reflect the rest of the company's time here and the managers. Here's the quote. They, uh, meaning the, the, the new managers, weren't very interested in film technology. I remember bringing one of the senior vice presidents out to the factory we had, this very large new machine the size of a house. You could actually get inside of them, and I swear, I could have been showing him a Coke vending machine instead. He didn't care at all. And the bottom line was, they weren't very good at selling stuff. They were more interested in just telling you how good they were. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of showmanship, uh, but no real substance to back any of it up. Yeah, it uh, unfortunately, it, it rings very true, as you're going to see. I mean, I so, feel that's the mark of, I, sh I should be careful how I say it. I feel like this is a certain type of salesman, one who is excellent at getting their foot in the door, telling you all the right things, but, you know, the substance or the product behind it all is pretty lackluster or isn't even there, you know? And so it seems like as marketers, at least these guys are that type of salesman. That's certainly what it sounds like, but they don't think that. They think they're great. They are going to change this company, and they are going to start by restructuring the company. Self-delusion. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so they had, in 1995, they spent $247 million on restructuring the company. Now, when I saw that, I didn't actually think too much of it. Uh, on a balance sheet, you can have a one-time charge... Well, and I've given a year for restructuring company. It's not typically thought to really affect the financial outlook of a company. And I was pretty firmly in that camp as well uh, until I started digging into it. I'm going to fast forward real quick. We're going to bounce around. But just since we're on this topic, I told you $247 million in restructuring charges. The next year, they spent $33 million. The year after that, they spent $323 million. And a year after that, they spent $50 million. That's not a one-time charge. <laughs> the, when you do it every single year, it is not a one-time charge. And they were not paying with this with cash. They were pretty much taking out the money to do this. All right, so you might I might be jumping ahead, but what were they even restructuring? What are you restructuring every year like that? I... How big is the company overall? <laughs> what are you, what's left to restructure? I don't know how they're spending this much, but they're cutting the workforce. Anyway... 
I, I'm going to go into that very briefly at the end here. I wasn't able to get specifics, but you are. we're going to talk about that workforce here at, at the end as we get closer. It's kind to of the, like trying to make a sculpture out of a piece of clay, and you keep sculpting until you realize, oh, wait, there's nothing left for me to make a sculpture <laughs> out of. <laughs> uh, yeah. But as far as Gary is concerned, this is necessary. This is what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I have a quote from him a little bit later that will kind of emphasize his, his view of what's going on. Uh, as I said, uh, he was delivering. He was creating all these new products. There was even a Spice Girls edition camera. Ooh. Get on that. <laughs> <laughs> Polaroid also joined the disposable instant photography. Think more like, you know, the like remember we talked about the Kodak well, you know, the, the famous Kodak things that you kind of spin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, there were already competitors. This wasn't a new space. They're just entering something that already exists and really wasn't doing all that well. There were some plans in place to create a combo camera that took digital and instant photos. But it was a little too expensive to develop and it did not get moved forward. It could have been amazing or it could have been the worst of both worlds when you try to compromise in a product like that. It's pretty hard to say. Mm-hmm. In an effort to save some more costs, the company moved manufacturing to China. Now, to be fair, this could be underneath the re- that restructuring charge. Uh, and this is a legitimate charge. Moving a manufacturing plant to China, yes, in the long term, you can save some money, but it is, you're going to take that hit in that the time period that it happens. That is a le- legitimate reason uh, for that. However, it's not a great PR move. So they moved the manufacturing to China led to the closure of some of the Massachusetts plants. So now you're moving jobs from America over to China. Not a great PR look. However, they're definitely not alone at this point in time. Many, many companies are doing this. Uh, it is it is certainly not unique. The company in 1996 also launched a digital camera. Wow. Look at that. Getting they're trying to they're trying to pivot where things seem to be going at the time. It was called the PDC-2000. I guess 2000 being a very fancy or futuristic yeah. sounding time frame at the time. And not only that, they get 16% of the digital market space. Which isn't terrible, but considering they have they had at one point like 100% of the instant film market, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not so great. And when you only have 16% of something, that, I mean, that really isn't a terrible market share. But if you're trying to claw your way into something, it's not great. There's a lot and of I imagine there's probably a pretty high R&D cost for that. Since, yeah, since there's no real knowledge transfer, I imagine, from anybody. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, starting from scratch. Uh, so, 90, so they got that going. So things are moving along. In 1997, though, uh, another round of cuts, another 15% cut to the workforce. Got to cut those costs there. If you remember, in 1978, at their height, Polaroid had about 20,000 employees. They're down to 9,000. Wow. Less than 50% of the company is still there. Now, 9,000 is nothing to, to uh, shirk it there. I mean, it's that's a decent-sized company still. It's totally fine. And there's nothing wrong with reducing <laughs> bloat. But not nonetheless, uh, they're cutting costs. Again, in 1997, they came out with this iZone camera. And it does. I think I remember well. that. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> okay. Uh, so some of the things that he's doing is working. Now, Polaroid has a second problem, which we discussed in the last episode. 
there's a lot of diminishing returns. They know that the typical consumer buys a Polaroid, uses it for a film pack or two, and then discards it. So by throwing all these products, part of the solution to that is, well, we'll just keep getting new people to buy stuff. The problem is that you are going to run into a wall in the same way that Instapont it did, where they just went out of business because there's only so many people. Only so many people want to buy a Polaroid and eventually you're going to run out. Yeah, and just for um, anybody listening, I did in in fact have one of these, and maybe some of you will remember that they're like an oblong-looking camera, um, like an oval shape, and more of like a toy look to them. It says that actually it was made by Japanese toy manufacturer Tomi, which I guess that would make sense then. Um, Yeah. So I, I remember having these as one as a kid, and they had like fancy design on the tape with the photo. But yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like I said, it was working. I did a little informal survey. I talked to some people about their experience with Polaroid in the '90s and their impression, and almost universally. Now again, it's not a true sample size, so we're going to be talking about statistics. But uh, the response was cheap. Mm fun but cheap and not great quality so that's kind of the impression and it seems in my research that that kind of be is the impression of polaroid at this time seems a little different than in the 70s with the sx70 camera Mm -hmm. that kind of came out it's not exactly the perception that you want to have and they're not doing anything to change that. In fact, they're leaning more into the cheapness. It I seems like a shift from professionalism to consumerism, as in like it is a product to be used up, you know. Yes, that is very much true, I would say. Polaroid did was kind of looked into making home printers. They use a lot of ink, right, to kind of mourn their wheelhouse. But they created a dry imaging system called helios and that did not do well again they were in another market space and they were losing to ge unfortunately and kind of ironically kodak bought a system from 3m the the rights to make that and they beat polaroid (laughs) up in that market uh i think they were still a little upset about the (laughs) the court case so like i said 1997 um Polaroid is not is starting to definitely show signs that they're not doing well. You, you got to love analysts. Sometimes they say some pretty neat stuff. Uh, this is a quote from one of them. It said, stated that Polaroid should have gotten into batteries or other cash flow predictable markets. It's like, it, duh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, I mean, batteries, it's not exactly their thing. And number two, well, yeah, of course they should get into uh, cash flow predictable products i mean that's yeah it's kind of like that. you know saying about any company that's failing nowadays you know well why didn't you just get into ai like silicon valley you know to uh i don't know like walmart and well walmart's not failing but you know what i mean <laughs> it's just like yeah, yeah, a ridiculous proposition yeah. Uh, yeah you just need to make more money <laughs> doing what everybody else does what's hot yeah there was another analyst that said uh, they issued a lot of bonds and borrowed a lot of money. That's what got them in the hole they're in today. Okay, thank you. That's So they went into a lot of, uh, to translate that, uh, they borrowed a lot of money and they went into a lot of debt. Okay, thank you. Another great insight there. I mean, maybe not wrong, but also po- possibly a bit too surface level. Yeah. Too generic. 
Yeah, I mean, it just we could pick any company, and you can pretty much pretty much say that. Right, because a lot of times when yeah. these companies fail, you can look at it and say, well, they were in a lot of debt, and they weren't able to pay it back, and they filed for bankruptcy. And it's like, well, yes, but what led up to the fact that they couldn't pay back their debts? Was it the fact that they overborrowed, or was there something else going on? Exactly. Another thing that Polaroid has an advantage in, or did have an advantage in that we didn't really talk about, was they, in developing countries that didn't have the infrastructure to develop film, for like Kodak, the instant film was amazing. And one place that this was especially true was Russia. Their height, they were having 200 million in sales in Russia. Really? Yeah. However, at this point in time, in the late 90s, that dropped to 25 million. Wow. It is starting to tank. They were starting to, as I said, they're starting to lose their competitive advantage, and some competitors like Fujifilm are starting to chip away at that. Mm-hmm. So, 1997, okay, 1998, things are starting to shrink, but they're, they're kind of still around. But 1999, now, Matt, I'm sure you, you remember, but if not, I'll remind you, they go bankrupt in 2001, in the fall. So we're still still a little bit away from that. Mm-hmm. So 1999, Gary announced that they were going to sell off four divisions. Now, this is, before I go into that, this is always a warning sign. This is to, at this point, for a company that's not doing well, this is basically, if you want to put it into like a household, you know, you're selling your car so you can pay your mortgage, right? We're going to start selling off these divisions, so that we could just pay some of our, our basic housekeeping mm-hmm. stuff. This is not a good sign. This is not them at their height or just routine things saying, eh, this division's not really making us or may not be in with our corporate philosophy or our mission. You see that from time to time with companies. There's nothing wrong with that. This is not that case. So they sell off one of their original divisions, which is sunglasses, if you remember, uh, graphic arts, holography. That's pretty cool. Mm. And glare reduction polarizers and they said doing this will allow us to focus in quotations on instant photography you mean the thing that you said is going to end up losing you money <laughs> down the road that you're not doing well in thank you for that gary what they're doing right now is uh selling park place because they landed on uh, a pink square <laughs> they have no money left <laughs> that's uh that's a well, definitely what analogy you could use. <laughs> uh, they also wanted to focus on some new cool products. One of them called Pop Shots. No exclamation mark like the Pronto, although I think it should. It definitely I deserves this up one because I feel like I remember this. But you keep going. I can tell. I can tell you about it okay. here. It was a one-time use camera. So, pretty much exactly what I said before to be used. <laughs> Literally <laughs> exactly. got to the bottom yes. of that goal. <laughs> Exactly. And they were also trying to win that race of a digital camera that could also make a print, which didn't happen. This is such a big camera for one time. Like literally one picture. But think about this. If you know that your target audience is only buying a Polaroid and using a film pack anyway, why not just design a camera that's only been designed to use once? It's even cheaper. Maybe they'll buy more. Well, how many how many uh, photos can you take with this? I don't know. Oh, okay, I think I had a misunderstanding there first. I thought it was like literally one photo, <laughs> and it's done. Because <laughs> <It's like, what? 
Because then when I saw the size of it, I was like, that seems ridiculous. But okay, that makes sense. So you can't, you know, um, use this like a disposable camera that you would pop more film into. It's more of you, you just throw the whole thing away when you're done. I think so. But I, I got to be honest, I didn't de- dig too deep into that. Gotcha. Uh, more good news, though, for Polaroid. A camera called the iZone and the Joy Cams. They were selling well. Uh, these prints had like a sticky back to it, almost like a postage stamp. So then you could like put them on walls and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they paired up with a new marketing agency. And their target for this was 15 to 17 year old girl teens. They actually made this TV ad where a girl was jumping on her bed and then like sticking Polaroids on the ceiling. Oh, well. Did fairly well, actually. I was one of those kids in 1999 who had that, but I was taking pictures of my Star Wars action figures, so. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that, I mean, it worked, maybe just not that particular ad for you. And now we're going to start seeing the snowball effect here. On the home front, large retailers started to buy less Polaroids because they started to jump on the digital bandwagon. So now you have these big retailers. They're not buying as much supply. That's going to hurt. And another large market, for Polaroid, as you can probably imagine, though you may not have thought of it, was insurance adjusters and law enforcement. Okay. Yeah. I could see that. Uh, and when I say they were a large market, they counted for about 40% of their sales. Wow. They are big. And these, this section is kind of switching digital as well. So really, their core product is starting to kind of crumble around them. Good good news, though, as Gary would say. <laughs> good news around the corner. It's always good news. Yeah. He could say, and legitimately say this. This is the thing with statistics, right? He could say that sales have actually gone up. They From 1972 to where he is in 1998, sales have tripled from $750 million to $2.1 billion. I mean, not all of it under his leadership, but they are good. And remember we talked about the... The restructuring charge. Mm-hmm. We're gonna kind of bring that full loop here. The sales staff also grew from 140 to 800. That's okay, and they also had a lot of back end workers, a little bit more than they needed. And there were there was another issue was their sales model because unproductive unproductive people were paid just as well as stellar salesmen. That's a recipe for disaster. Maybe not disaster, but at least uh, long term keeping good people. Mm-hmm. I I think this is what part of what frustrates me about the shareholder driven model for companies is that you know he's obfuscating the truth knowing that news things aren't good and all he's doing is trying to prolong the he's prolonging its its death or its pain by you know covering up for all this and saying no no no, no sales are good sales are going up and it would take a very astute and a uh, person who's looking very closely to figure that out, you know. So it's really all about the shareholders because otherwise he would have less incentive to cover up for it and he might actually address the real problem or be open about it. It is a difficult road to travel because if you just come out and say, <laughs> we are screwed, <laughs> um, right? yeah. you're, you will – you could go bankrupt that day exactly. you know, with your stock price. Yeah. So I, I do understand that it is a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's kind of go over their I'm not sales. saying it's good that he's 
covering up with the analytics, but I'm also saying that there, there might be less incentive to do things like that when so much of your value is, isn't tied up in a system like that, but I digress. Yeah, I get that. So we'll talk about their sales a little bit more. 1998, like I said, was a tough year. They had their inventory reductions, the, the Russia issue. Uh, again, in 1998, they reported this is also very tricky and why you really need to listen to what they're saying. The Polaroid reported an operating profit of $44.5 million. That sounds pretty good. Investors like that. Except this is the profit that excludes interest and charge expenses. And what were those? Uh, in that particular year, it was $50 million on restructuring. And they wrote off $43.5 million in assets. So they actually had a net loss of $51 million that year. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, a little tricky there. Oh, but they, again... It's okay. Management was saying this is an improvement because last year we had a net loss of 126 million. So we are improving. <laughs> We're going up toward to, toward the zero line. <laughs> exactly. But are they really going up? Because remember, they they were selling off divisions, so right. that's going to show up, and that does affect the bottom line. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. they're actually really doing any better. Again, I have a statement from Gary. This is a quote, and he said. We were disappointed in the fourth quarter, but we have greatly increased our cash position and have reduced this year's end debt by $100 million. So good for him. He's spinning it best way he can. Uh, An analyst at the time was quoted as saying, this is not good. (laughs) Famously said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Polaroid was kind of still operating underneath this mantra of all roads lead to print, which is definitely not coming true. Now, if you remember in the last episode, Disney offered to buy the company for about $3 billion. This is about nine years ago. And that was in 1989. In 1998, Polaroid was only worth about a billion. They've gone down two thirds. This is a Netflix blockbuster scenario. Yeah, pretty much. So I'm going to... Now, I'm trying to reduce the amount of numbers that I'm spitting out because that can get very confusing. So I'm just going to do a few brief one here. In 1990, they had sales of $1.9 billion, roughly. In 1995, five years later, $2.2 billion. So things aren't terrible there. A little thing here. The, at the time, in 1995, they had about $150 million in current debts, and the CFO was getting fairly worried about that now for our listeners a current debt it's a very specific term in accounting a current debt is one ones that are due within 12 months so if you think about it if you have a car payment that's a hundred dollars a month and you're you're let's say you have ten thousand dollars left in the car but your your current payment in accounting anyway would only be twelve hundred dollars because that's what you owe for the next year And that's important because we're going to be using that term here. And I'm sure we'll be using that term in plenty of episodes as well. But that is important. So in 1998, uh, they had $1.8 in sales. $1.8 in sales. In 99, they had $1.9. So, okay, great. And then in 2000, one year before bankruptcy, 
0.8. And actually, I believe they actually did turn a profit in 2000. However, uh-huh. their total current liabilities. So again, the amount that they owe in the next 12 months is $793 million. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a profit of $100 million and your piggy bank or your savings account is close to zero because you're, you're selling assets to even get there, that is a crushing amount of current debt. You can only draw from your assets so much before you get utterly destroyed as a company. Mm-hmm. And Polaroid is reaching that point. How long are they allowed to default? That is up to your creditors, right? Mm. So uh, I'm going to talk about it here briefly. But essentially, I mean, you can go to a bank. I mean, I like that quote where it says, if the if you owe the bank a little bit of money, they own you. If you owe them a lot of money, you own them. Because mm. they, some banks could fail, potentially, depending on how much they give out, right? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So they will, most banks will definitely work with you to get money. Mm-hmm. Or at least if you do go bust, uh, they can s- claim your assets and sell those, which happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in 1995, the company's stock was worth around $50 a share. In 2001, in October, 28 cents. Oof. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so let's do a little timeline here. So now we're in the year 2000. Company's still not doing well. But that's okay. That's not what Gary says. Gary comes out with a statement. He says, our new products are doing well. It appears that the slowing economic growth and more conservative stocking policies are negatively impacting shipments for our traditional film lines. Uh, and if you want to toss that through our translator, Polaroid's doing great. It's the economy and outside factors that are making us, you know, losing money here. <laughs> And as Polaroid is getting weaker and weaker and having to sell more and more of the company, they are becoming fairly valuable in pieces rather than as a whole. Large companies like Olympus and Canon, there could be interest in Polaroid's distribution networks. Um, uh, There's a new tech called Onyx that they have, which captures wireless transmissions of images and converts them into black and white prints. That could be of interest to communication companies, but essentially they're looking like uh, they could get bought. Mm. But they're slowly becoming the Honda Civic that sits in your driveway and becomes worth more to part out than to sell as it is. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And that is a problem, especially as the company gets cheaper and cheaper. There's also this new thing called Opal. It was a new color printing method. Uh, There were just so many things that were desirable to other companies and pieces. So let's go to 2001. I'm going to give you the headlines. All right, here we go. June, Polaroid cuts 2,000 jobs. July, banks give Polaroid time to renegotiate millions, as we just kind of talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, September, <laughs> this is not the line you want to have. Uh, for Polaroid, the bad news seems to be the only news. <laughs> <laughs> and then October 13th. Fairly ironic. Uh, Polaroid files for bankruptcy. And that is not even close to the end of their story. You know, when I when I do research, I kind of do a little, I just kind of skim through the whole story of the company. And I kind of came to this and thought, great, I'm all done. Wrap it up. And then I realized, wow, there is a whole lot 
more left to cover. So we're going to we're going to start going through that. I feel like uh, just briefly that whenever you read in the headlines about a company, I, f- I might be wrong, but I feel like I remember this for Bed Bath & Beyond, which is a, a recent one, that whenever you read such and such company is being given time to renegotiate its debts, you're like, they're done. <laughs> it just yeah. always is like the death knell for that company. It's, it's when they're nice. renegotiating their debts. It's <laughs> not like, a good sign. Yeah. They're very weak. Yes. Yeah. So that was October 2001. July 2002, Polaroid was sold to Bank One's investment arm called One Equity Partners. Now, remember I said, was it 1998? They were they about a billion. They were bought for $255 million. And of that, $138 million of this was Polaroid's own cash. Hmm. I looked into this a little bit. I wasn't able to find out as much as I hoped, but they were negotiating directly with Polaroid. And I think Polaroid just agreed to put up that money really? so that they could buy themselves. Yeah, it was <laughs> uh, it's very interesting. And of course, Gary got a nice payout of and course. Left, left, left the company. He's walking on, he's just shaking his head, and he's like, nobody listens. (laughs) And he whispers, I'll take that check now. (laughs) Uh, However, I'm not the only one that thought this buyout was a little odd. Uh, It was so low that a group of upset investors filed a case to the SEC saying that the CFO undervalued Polaroid's assets by 75%. The claims also suggested that the leadership team claimed the value of other assets much lower than they actually were. It also didn't help that Bank One was the only bidder, kind of making it look a little dodgy Mm. (laughs) all the way around. It also didn't look good that in three years, the company sold Polaroid for $435 million, and they didn't do anything in that time. So kind of dodgy mm. all the way around. The executives that were managing Polaroid until that other sell-off uh, made a few million dollars. And do you remember when Polaroid saved itself from the Disney buyout by creating that employee stock buy-in program? Yes. And if you don't, you definitely remember now. <laughs> um, when Polaroid was going bankrupt, executives were free to sell their shares. However, employees that have bought in through the program were not allowed to do so. Hmm. Now, I say that because the six, uh, well, because those people lost a lot of money and all the people that had retired from Polaroid, the pensioners, uh, as you can imagine, got almost nothing in this buyout. Oh, that sucks so much. Yeah. So these guys managing Polaroid during this time... Is it the equivalent of them sitting to manage like a URL domain that isn't doing anything? No, no, no. It's so Polaroid like... is still a functioning company this okay. time. Okay. Yeah, they, they really are still a functioning company. <laughs> it's it's like not just sitting things. around being like, yep, that's our brand name right there. No, no, no. Polaroid <laughs> is still, okay. they are still selling. Yes, they are. Uh, so when I said those employees in that employee stock program, they didn't get nothing. Uh, they got nine cents a share. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Good, good good payout. <laughs> Said the company that paid it out. <laughs> this, is, this is a good payout right here. You guys yeah. should feel lucky. Exactly. Yeah, you're getting something. Uh, also, the retirees, the pensioners, they had 
really great health insurance, which the company also bought out. Now, I did some back-of-the-envelope math, and I estimated that the payout per employee to buy out health insurance for the rest of their life, which I think I calculated at 20 years, uh, should be about $48,000 based on, I did pretty conservative, I think I did $200 a month uh, for Mm -hmm. their portion. Uh, You know what they received? Take a guess. $1,200. Uh, that uh, yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty good. Forty-seven dollars. No, <laughs> no way. In say, I, I like how they specifically forty-seven is if it's some magical calculation. That's right. <laughs> that yeah. they came they, up. They're with. like, well, you know, we did it. We ran. It. It's forty-seven dollars and six cents that we're yes. paying out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now all this is going on. Remember that lawsuit that those investors filed. Uh, the courts found that the owners of Polaroid acted greedily and in ugly ways, but not illegal ones. So what, what you did was wrong, but technically not illegal. This is what happens when people talk about gifts, too. When like <laughs> gifts are given and then they, people are like, well, technically that doesn't violate the gift-giving law. But we all know what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Now, so Bank One sold it to another group called the, well, I'm going to pronounce it Petters Group. It's P-E-T-T-E-R. So I don't know if it's Peters Group or Petters Group. Mm. I'm going to go with Peters. No, Petters. I'll go with Petters. I'll go with you on that one. Seems okay. the most logical. Yeah. The, uh, have you heard of this group before, Matt? I have not. There, uh, when I was doing my research, I knew there was a chance you may have heard of them. So, uh, oh, well, good. This will be a oh, surprise. I see. <laughs> I understand. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see if uh, if you know what happens. So, this company specialized in brokered companies. Now, this was a large firm, larger firm, had about thirty four hundred employees. Um, and they most famously turned around a company called Finger Hut. They essentially, they sold cheap mail order housewares, okay? Now remember, Polaroid is still, as you were asking me, it's still in a tech company, okay? It's still working, it's just under new management. Now, underneath Bank One, Polaroid decided the best way to move forward was just to put its name on things. So now there's Polaroid DVD players, among other electronic devices, though there's nothing related to Polaroid. Um, they also, underneath one bank, determined that there would only be 10 years of film before the demand pretty much dropped to zero. Now, that's really important. So keep a little pin in that. So they expected, so they said, okay, so we're going to make 10 years worth, and then we're just going to shut everything down. No more factories, no more film. We're done. We'll have mm-hmm. our little stockpile, and then when it runs out, then we'll be done. Okay? That is going to come into play here in a little bit. If the employees didn't really have much to say about one bank, they had a lot to say about their new owner, and they hated him. (laughs) Tom Petter. Uh, He was known as a bit unpleasant. Uh, Unpleasant enough that I cannot write down or say some of the quotes that I had to read about him. But I will tell you a story about him. Here's an example. 
and you don't have to tell me now, but keep this in the back of your mind. Um, unusual team building or humiliation. All right. Okay. All right. So he called for a meeting in the cafeteria with all of the Polaroid's upper management. He hit, he then had each one stand up on a table and sing and dance for him. And then he would give them a $10 bill. That just seems so, like you said before, maybe not illegal, but definitely wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Matt. So what do you think now? Um, I would say this is like akin to like a cabaret dance, but in the workplace, it's like kind of ridiculous and humiliating to be, uh, to be told, go dance a jig for me and maybe you'll get 10 bucks. Um, by the way, this is for team building. Uh, that it's just absolutely insane. I can't even imagine that happening nowadays. (laughs) And if you are a listener and you think that maybe it's just a, a unique team building exercise, Let's finish listening to this story, and maybe you'll change your mind. All right, so that was just a little anecdote about kind of who he is. So now let's kind of introduce one of his first meetings at Polaroid. So imagine a boardroom. Tom comes in. The executives are chatting to him about the film sales, the cash on hand for the company. Tom's looking around a little shifty. He's not really interested in any of that. He says... I just want to know how many assets we have and how quickly they can be converted into cash. Like, okay, that's not odd at all for a CEO to want to know that, but okay. So they talk with him about that and uh, just just leave a little little pin in right there. That'll, that'll come back. All right, so the next thing they do. Uh, he sells, he uh, spins off the sunglass division that went off into its own company. And do you remember that underneath the first company that bought Polaroid, they determined that there would only be 10 years supply left of film. So they made all those, mm-hmm. they made as much film as they needed for 10 years, and they started shutting down the plant. However, now that it's coming down the line here, they sold out of their 10-year supply after only five years. This is roughly 2007 right now. Turns out demand wasn't going down to zero like predicted. <laughs> it's, the, the graphs say it should be zero, right? You know, <laughs> uh, Polaroid was not dying quite so quickly. It was starting to be seen in society as kind of retro and cool. And the, the sales were kind of just flattening out rather than declining, which... Is something you you don't usually hear flattening out as a good thing, but in here it's it's pretty good, right? When your expectation was zero, <laughs> uh, it's pretty good uh, to flatten yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, but still going along with this, uh, the next year Polaroid announced it was done with film. Fujifilm was actually going to buy Polaroid's film pack business, and then for whatever reason they backed out, and Polaroid was told or the employees were told and the engineers once everything was done to destroy their equipment so they could they could write it off if it was destroyed there was quite a bit of backlash for this so there was a quote well i mean you can't just create this equipment that was specifically designed for polaroid back easily and there was a quote from this time that says these corporate raiders who buy a company and strip it for everything profitable they just pick the bones it's like yeah that's unfortunately <laughs> Kind of how it goes. 
Tom's executives decided that they made a mistake. They said, we, we need to we need to sell some film again. So they just they turn out they look over to the engineers and I'm imagining them talking to them with the burned rubble of the machines in the background, a little bit of smoke puffing up. And they said, we we, we can just turn back on the switch, right? Just 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 flip the switch. <laughs> It's just a conveyor belt. <laughs> or they walk into an uh, empty warehouse after selling off all the assets and their voices echoing and they're like, well, we'll just, just start up again. You remember how to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how hard can it be? Uh, the answer by the engineers was absolutely not. There's no film. There's no negatives. There's no dyes. There's nothing. We have nothing. Now, you might be wondering, what was Tom thinking about all of this? Because if you remember, I was saying Tom's executives went to them. Uh, Tom, I'm pretty sure, did not care one bit about what was happening. He was pretty busy at the moment. Uh, in October of 2008, he was arrested for fraud. Oh. Yeah, isn't that nice? He was sentenced for in jail for 50 years. Whoa, whoa. That's a pretty hefty sentence so let's figure out what tom was doing in the background so tom started his company i told you he had about 3600 employees there he did you know he supposedly turned around that company finger hut but it turns out this was all a ruse he raised roughly 3.6 billion dollars from backers for non-existent companies it was a Mm -hmm. ponzi scheme nice and you just know when you went and oriented at his company, they had a very strong ethics orientation video. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Methinks the lady doth protest too much, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know what it is about these failing companies that attract people to to commit fraud. I feel like this is a pattern that I've seen over and over again. <laughs> so it wasn't just Polaroid. This was going on long before. So the reason he bought Polaroid and he was so interested in those assets was so he could just liquidate them and sell them to continue his Ponzi scheme. Oh, well, I guess that probably answers the question that I just yeah. <laughs> asked. I would argue that this is the true death of the old Polaroid. I think there was a death of Polaroid when Edward Land passed away, and I think this is this is it. Polaroid is completely... The old Polaroid is completely gone. All the technology that they had, the factories, the ability to produce the film is gone. And you can thank Tom Fetters for that. So after they went through the first bankruptcy, that's what you always want to go through is the first one. <laughs> now you're, they're ready right. for their second bankruptcy. If you remember, Tom Petters, they picked up the company for about $430 million. They sold it for 85 point nine. That's what happens when you strip a company down to its bones. Illegally. (laughs) Well, technically what he was doing, well, I mean, so selling the assets was legal. Selling the assets was, right, yeah. yeah, Not covering it for uh, the Ponzi scheme. The Ponzi scheme was different, but yeah. That's right. Now, if you remember, I think it was in part two, I mentioned that we were just going to cover the business side of Polaroid. We were not dealing with the artistic side. I am going to briefly mention it here because they merge which is Polaroid amassed a huge collection of photographs from famous artists. And Polaroid said and told the artists that they would not sell their photos. And they stuck with that. However, when you go bankrupt, all these it's just another asset. Mm-hmm. This 
caused a lot of consternation from artists who had donated to this collection uh, because it's being broken up. They amassed over 16,000 pictures in this collection. I don't know what the total price of the collection was, but a lot of these individual pictures sold for two to 3,000 apiece, and some of them went for as much as 500,000. Wow. This, <laughs> this was a big and sought-after collection. Yeah, I'm wondering how many um, famous photos that we've seen over the years, you know, ones that are in the, the public con- consciousness, if you will, are some of those photos. Yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't. I actually didn't take the time to, to look through them, but I'm sure there are definitely some. Mm-hmm. So the company was sold in the bankruptcy to the Hilco slash Gordon Brothers. So keep them in the back of your mind. So they, this, these two, these brothers, they own Polaroid. Okay. Now there's another group of people that kept Polaroid alive, not the actual name. We'll see you in a second. There were some managers of a film plant in the Netherlands. The factory was supposed to close down, but they managed to convince Polaroid to sell it to them, and they created a company called The Impossible Project. They hired some Polaroid employees, former Polaroid employees, to create film again. They didn't have any supplies, batteries, or dyes. However, from the ground up, they were able to create some film that could be used on the SX-70. However, the original film is pretty much... You cannot replicate it. But they had a substitute. It's incredible to me that it, this was in 2010, that the the film that they created back in the 70s cannot be recreated today. That is. Do you, is that something to do with just a lack of knowledge transfer? It's possible. Didn't... I, I didn't. I looked into it a little bit, but I can't really tell why. I just I don't think they can make it exactly the way it was. They had a substitute. It wasn't nearly as good, but it did work. And they have managed to improve it over time. Mm. I feel like it's one of those cases of lost recipe, you know? Yeah, like that's I think it is. quite a bit over the over many different companies where something gets brought back and they're like, well, it's as close as we can get it. <laughs> and that, that's why I do think that the tr- the full death of pol- the old Polaroid was when at the end of uh, or when it was sold again and all that film technology was destroyed because mm-hmm. it's just it, you can't replace it. So if we go back to the brothers that own Polaroid, they hired a CEO, Bobby Sager. Now, he was a photographer himself, but he was fairly practical. And I love this. He said he was quoted as saying, I'm not interested in slapping the Polaroid band on products. So they took the Fuji. They took a Fuji film camera and they slapped their label on it. And it sold really well. (laughs) It's not true if you say it. You know what I mean? If you say, well, I'm not just plastering it on like a Band-Aid. Then when you plaster it on like a Band-Aid, you've, you know, you've covered yourself already. You said that's not what you're doing. So oh, yeah. it's obviously well, no, something it's, else. It's obviously something else. It's much more sophisticated. <laughs> but what was important about this was large retailers like Target started to pick this camera up. Now, if we go back in time to before the first bankruptcy, right at the beginning of our episode, they started technology called Zinc. And this was a technology where no ink was used to develop a picture. As you can imagine, once the company got picked up by Tom, uh, he didn't want anything to do with it. 
why do I want to spend millions of dollars developing? I'm trying to pull money from the company, not put money into it. There's one big glorified garage sale and your ideas are getting in the way. <laughs> I don't think you get the point of why I bought this company here. Anyway, so the way it works is there's a sheet of paper and it has the color crystals in there. And when it goes through the printer, a heat printer, and it's heated at the, you know, this, the different pixels, mm. um, it creates the image. Uh, and this was this aha moment where they said, why don't we just take the camera that we have and this printer and let's put them together. And if you do it right, it's going to feel like a Polaroid. <laughs> and that this is what we have today. Is this similar to a laser printer? I'm trying to remember the technology. I thought the oh. laser printers, they have like dust that, or particulates that you heat up and they melt on, onto the paper. Yeah, I, uh, the difference here is this is all within the film, the, the paper that you have itself. So it's not something uh, putting onto it. It's already in the paper. Okay, so the heat is changing the crystals in that. Yes, okay. inside. Interesting. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Very cool. So in 2017, uh, um, I'm going to probably botch this name too. Small. I'm not even going to say it. I'm gonna. It's, his name's going to be S. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Give it a uh, shot. Try it. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll make this a bit from now on. <laughs> Just <laughs> Small Lukowski. I'm not saying that That's again. That's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. He was a major shareholder in the Impossible Project. He ended up buying the holding company that owned Polaroid, bringing in this film and the cameras together underneath one owner. And so the Impossible Project was then rebranded to Polaroid Originals. And in 2019, the Polaroid website sells instant camera and films from Polaroid Originals. The modern Polaroid is now born. The company is still hanging out it is definitely not what it was and as of march 2020 polaroid originals is now just called polaroid so the new polaroids work by using the zinc technology the old polaroid is gone and the new is here the question is is it going to stick around and that is the end of the narrative however for those of you who typically don't listen to the discussion i would at least listen to the first little bit because from now on uh, at the end of a series uh, the very first thing we're going to talk about are the very the bullet points of why did polaroid fail and we're going to kind of just go through this fairly quickly if you kind of got lost in the narrative so we will see you in the discussion hey everybody matt here uh, that's the end of the narrative portion of the podcast but Joel and I are going to discuss for just a few minutes a couple of things. If you're just interested in the narrative portion of the podcast, uh, you can feel free to skip this part and wait for our next one to come out. But if you are interested in the discussion that we're going to have, feel free to enjoy. All right, Matt. I have listed seven reasons uh, for Polaroid's failure, and feel free to challenge me on these. Okay. All right. Reason number one, and these are not in... Uh, any particular order. Reason number one, they believed Polaroid management that all roads led to film, also kind of known as the success trap. You know, this works. This is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Number two, though they invested in other projects, they could not pivot from film. 
you I've read very often that said, oh, they, they just couldn't get away from film at all. That's not true. They just couldn't pivot successfully into other projects. <laughs> Number three, a string of quote unquote one time charges that equated uh, equaled six hundred million dollars in a company that's already weak financially. And what brought them down was eight hundred and some change million dollars in current liabilities. Even though they made a profit that year, it was not enough to stop them from going under. And I do believe that is a contributing factor. Four, Polaroid's management knew that people didn't use their Polaroids very long. Instead of trying to change this perception of cheapness, they simply leaned into it and made just, you know, tens of different products, variations of a camera. Five, a failure by management to reorganize the company despite spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Six, increased competition from rivals like Kodak and Fujifilm and new technology. Obviously digital, but also like one hour film kiosks. And number seven, and this is all those first six are kind of leading up to the first bankruptcy. But after that first bankruptcy, I think it's pretty simple. Greed and corruption. <laughs> mm-hmm. Have any added thoughts on those, Matt? I was trying to think through as you went through the list if there was any that I disagreed with. I would say I would only maybe caveat number five, which was the failure to reorganize as maybe did they need to reorganize in the first place? Like what was the impetus behind that besides maybe a panic about cost, right? So, you know, they failed to organize but is it one of those situations where you're so far in now that all you can focus on is the fact that you need to keep doing something about this problem and not actually stepping back enough to, to understand, do we, is, are we causing more harm by spending all this money trying to reorganize than if we just left it mostly alone, you know? Yeah, when Gary came in, he felt he had to reorganize and he spent a huge amount of money doing it and failed. Pretty badly. So exactly. Did they even need to be reorganized? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I was I was thinking, um, I have to use a swear word because it's in the title of the podcast, but <laughs> on our PG podcast. But I was listening recently to um, Behind the Bastards, and they have one that is, they recently talked about, what is his name? I forgot his name, but he's an airline CEO. And uh, actually, a lot of the conversation reminded me of our Pan Am discussion. Um, I was hearing similar things, but anyway, uh, he, they actually mentioned uh, corporate raiders in there and how part of the model for some of these is to, what you end up seeing is there are periods of extreme growth with some of these companies due to circumstances. Like they talk about the pandemic and growth that ex- was experienced during the pandemic, right? And then they're given these huge loans because of course we've got to grow, Oh, we've got to meet the demand where it's at, right? But it's all based on this short-term, you know, there's no long-term planning with that. Uh, And I see a similar thing here where they just, you know, took on all of this debt uh, and became over-leveraged and then were not unable to pay it back because they had all these current liabilities, right? I mean, just a similar scenario where you plan only for the present and not for the future, I don't want to stray too far from Polaroid, but this is what happened with that company, Yellow, the trucking company. 
Mm. I don't know. Uh, they actually got a $700 million CARES loan from the government during the pandemic. And they just went under this week. This is current news. Oh, did they really? Yes. And then it, um, something released from the government saying they didn't actually qualify for that load. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Anyway, so we could t- toss them on the list. They might be a company we'll be doing yeah. down the road. <laughs> well, yeah. No pun intended. But I think this, as you see other companies, it's going to be a, a pattern of, oh, we've grown. We should take on a massive loan to help us continue to expand our business rather than thinking maybe this is a short-term uh, high-profit season for us and we should see how it goes and not take on a bunch of debt for a future we're not certain about. Yeah, it, it's tricky. It is. Because then, you know, the, the other argument is, are you, are you saying that we shouldn't grow? We, we can't stagnate because then our, our competitors are just going to roll over us and beat us to the market. Actually, my position is not every company needs to continue growing. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's and like a, a hot take in, in Wall I, Street or whatever. Actually, <laughs> I agree with you. And I'm going to take it one further is that companies failing is not necessarily a bad thing. It True. is a cycle. Companies will fail in, in a now. Now we're going to go into theory. This isn't always true. But ideally, you know, if they fail, then a better company, they failed because better companies are coming along and taking over the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not always true, obviously. But I really don't think that failing companies is necessarily a negative thing. Now, if you work for that company, and your paycheck depends on it. It feels very bad. But just from a macro level view, it's not a bad thing. And I get that we're kind of also now wrapped up in a game of everybody's growing. So if you stop trying to grow, you might get steamrolled. But, you know. The other argument is, well, let, let them expand their resources and we'll just kind of consolidate and wait. When they fail, then we'll come in and pick them I up. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, there are arguments for everything. It's just a matter of being able to read to the best of your ability the, the current situation. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a weird... Um, I don't want to, yeah, I guess I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but it's a weird uh, scenario where you almost think about it like, you know, the MLM model, the multi-level marketing, mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you get someone and they get more people and those people get more people. It's like eventually you will run out of people, right? If you were to get every consumer, um, now granted, there are always people that's who are born, when you blah, blah, blah. Bring right? up that point. That's where they go something like, la, 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 la. <laughs> Yeah, so my my thought here was was essentially that companies want to like infinitely expand, but there is a point where you can no longer conquer certain customer demographics. There are some who will never, ever be interested in you, and there are some that are going to be marginally beneficial for you. And I think they would probably say, well, then at that point, we just stop investing in them. But we've seen time and again, or Polaroid even, they're trying all these investments to, to branch out from from things and some of them they probably should have followed through on right but at a certain point you've got your hands in you know too many places and now you've you're spread too thin simply because you're like well we've got to expand and get everyone look at all those people out there who aren't buying stuff from us <laughs> <laughs> yeah they need a polaroid all right just switching topics here here's a, a question that was brought up here at the end Big data, which is even bigger now. It's such a huge topic, especially in the business world. I mean, but all over the place. Uh, 
you know, they projected and they said, okay, we have 10 years, we're going to make 10 years of film and then we're done. So here's my question to you. And I understand it's a big one. How do you try to mitigate when the conclusions you make from data are wrong? Because data is great and it can make you feel great when you make a decision. You know, uh, we're going to come in and we are going to do a decision A, B, and C because this is what the data says. I can, you know, I have it right here in front of me. It's very easy and you can use it to support yourself, which is why people like it. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you're wrong, which you see it all the time. You see, like, you see it all the time on forecasts for profits, you know. They were off by two cents a share, you know. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah. I mean, forecasting can be very difficult, but um, that is, I think, almost an art as much as it is a science. You're essentially trying to be a fortune teller with a, <laughs> with math, right? But um, I think there's a couple things at play for data. One of them is you have to be willing to be honest yourself with what kind of questions you're looking to answer with data because... Um, you know, one, you need to be focused about what it is you're searching for. I actually was speaking with somebody today about this, that it's data can be like a giant uh, lake or like a map, right? And I'm sorry, like a geolocation. And without a map, you can run around and look at all kinds of cool things. But are you going to actually get to the place that you were looking to be, right? Or do you have a goal when you're going to that location? And And the other thing is, you know, besides looking at asking the right questions, you have to also make sure you are using the right metrics, right? We talk about impressions a lot. Um, I think I use this example a lot for for marketing where impressions can be helpful for understanding what audiences you're reaching and how many people are interacting with your content. But, you know, if you're going to use that metric as a way of saying uh, we've succeeded with our marketing, um, uh, what do they call those? marketing campaign oh yeah yeah you know that i i don't think that's a a transparent metric right i think for instance of uh, google fi i don't know if you ever saw those ads for google fi but they got tons of impressions on those but it was a widely hated ad many many people hated it and i'm sure there were not many conversions from those advertisements because they were so annoying (laughs) um and so, you know, you, you've got to be honest about what you're looking for and what success looks like in, in terms of a metric. And I think the third thing that's important to know about data is you need sharp people who are going to poke holes in what you've presented, not to poke holes in it for your, you know, to damage your ego, right? They're not trying to be, they shouldn't be trying to be mean to you. What they're trying to do is say, does this hold water? Are we looking at the right information? Are we going to get what we need out of this that, you know, is really going to be um, beneficial for future campaign yeah. or, or whatever it happens to be? You need people who are going to do that and, and keep you honest. That term, I believe, is called a challenge culture. Mm. Where... Yeah, I think a healthy challenge culture. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you want to make sure that the ideas that come forward really are the best. It doesn't matter what title somebody has, where they come from. A, a, an idea should have merit on its own Mm -hmm. data is so easy to have fluff in it you have to really be i feel like targeted um, and intentional otherwise it's very easy to just be like look at all these things we can track right but (laughs) how many of them mean anything to you yeah to kind of take us back to polaroid i think polaroid and this is obviously a, a, a very much an opinion piece 
I think it really is kind of a map for tech companies, uh, and both in a good and a bad way. Polaroid fell relatively quickly. I guess it kind of depends on that. Uh, and I think that we will start to see tech companies take this route when their founders go and the, the second generation come in or third generation. And if they can't pull out the new products, then I think we will see more companies go out like Polaroid. I do think we're at, we're starting to reach the tail end of the gold rush of tech. It's been a boom for so long. It's almost like a simulacrum of California's original gold rush, yeah. you know? The question yeah. is, which which one, Matt? Which one's going to go first? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think I can be completely wrong here, but I really think Meta stays her. Oh, favorite. that's so... That, I, now, I, don't, I didn't have it like, written down paper, but that was what I was going to say. <laughs> that yeah. was my bet. Oh, man. Yeah, they just created... Uh, you know what? That's a whole other tangent. We're not going to that. Uh, but we'll see. Maybe in 10 years we will come back to this and say, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we nailed it. Yeah. Or I mean, we'll just be wrong. Yeah. I don't know. I just think that they uh, they have some business that's working for them, but I feel like a lot of their demographic has shifted and yeah. um, it's a dwindling, dwindling group. Well, let's uh, try not to go to meta. Maybe we'll just toss them on the list here in, in t- 10 years. Any other <laughs> thoughts on... Polaroid. Uh, before we close this section of uh, our time with the the company, I don't think we'll be revisiting them. Well, actually, that's not true. When we do Kodak, we'll see it from their side a little bit. So we'll see a little bit. I don't think so. I think the only thing I was going to mention a while ago was just that whenever they tried to make a new product, it felt like, as you said, they just threw things at the wall to see what sticked. There was really no evaluation of what kinds of pain points am I solving for a customer? What am I, what am I trying to do that's going to be uh, different than what's out there? Right? So, that, so that's, that's interesting because in, in some ways they are trying to appeal to customer demand. I mean, to take their view, you know, we're just going to throw what's out there, see what customers like, then we'll just make that. Whereas the Edmund Land philosophy was, it doesn't matter. We're just going to make something amazing that they don't have. And then they're going to come to us. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the difference between push and pull, right? Yes. And I feel like he, he was very good at the pull, which was, we are going to make something amazing. Um, but, well, actually, he's kind of a hybrid, right? Because technically, pull is customers say, we want this thing. And they're like, well, all right, we'll meet you. We'll meet you there and we'll make it for you. Uh, push is, I made this cool thing and you're going to love it. And you just shove it out onto the market <laughs> and it does or doesn't work, you know? Um, he seemed to be like a mix where he was like, I know that people are going to want something like this, but also I'm going to make it so good that when I release it, you're going to want it. I know you're going to want it. Mm-hmm. So he kind of was right. Yeah. yeah he, he mastered that hybrid approach. All right. Thank you everybody for listening. We will be releasing, I believe a one, maybe two parter, but it'd be much shorter uh, for our next episode. It will be on, dc solar now we keep promising ames now don't you worry that guy is still walking to apes just this one one more quick pit stop um, and i we think you're really to enjoying. the future that's right <laughs> uh, dc solar is going to be very different from either of these other companies we've covered so i think it'll be a, a very enjoyable 
sad and funny story at the same time. We can't wait to tell it to you guys. Till then. See ya.